I'm Bill Castle, and this is Free Expression. This program is all about conveying the Christian message from a Catholic point of view and defending the liberty which makes it possible to do that. We talk with creative, interesting people about the Church's view of religious freedom and about the corruption of higher education. Join us, sit back, and enjoy some free expression. It's no secret that the world of higher education has been pretty thoroughly captured by progressive ideology, that set of ideas we identify by the shorthand expression, woke. It started in the liberal arts with deconstructing the Western literary canon and revising American history. Today, even engineering and the physical sciences must be committed to social change and conform to standards of diversity, equity, and inclusion. All of this might be dismissed as a tempest in the academic teapot, except that careers are being destroyed and lives are being put in danger. Scholars fear doing research on subjects considered politically sensitive. Medical students are recruited according to policies of equitable representation. One of the most highly politicized academic fields is also one that touches the psychological and spiritual well-being of many people. That's the field of counseling. My guest is Leslie Elliott. She's a wellness coach and consultant who ran into a veritable buzzsaw of academic wokeness at Antioch University. Leslie, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you very much for having me, Bill. I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. Now, this show is about communication, religious and otherwise. At Antioch, you were being taught to communicate in a very stilted and politically loaded way. Please give us a little thumbnail of your situation there. I started the Clinical Mental Health Master's program in 2019 at Antioch, Seattle. There was still quite a bit of the program that was focused on imparting good counseling skills and doing group and individual work, learning to listen and reflect and find the value and meaning in what people were conveying to you in the client-counselor relationship, as well as theories and perspectives and other counseling processes. But there was an undercurrent of social justice, which I came to understand as a term of art. It's one of these benign-sounding phrases that actually has quite a bit of specific meaning to it. And there were a couple of places where this really cropped up. One was that, as I said, it was an undercurrent in all of the courses. There was this DEI sort of element added on, which sort of felt like a graft onto the material that was being conveyed. The second way that it was imparted was through a specific course that we had to take at the beginning of the program. So it was my second term. There was a course called Multicultural Perspectives, which taught us how to be a social justice counselor. And this was taught early in the program, and it was intended to stay with us and guide us in our professional development. And the third way was through communications that we received from the chancellor and the CEO of the university, the dean of students of the university, who would send out political statements and other guiding principal statements to the students. So that was how we were receiving the the DEI, or social justice education. And the way that we were supposed to communicate to clients using this framework was through a hierarchical lens, taking into account demographic factors, your own and the person to whom you are speaking, and 
using an intersectional focus to break down your understanding of that person's demographics into categories of oppressed and oppressor to tally up who has the most oppression points and correspond with people accordingly. People who come to a counselor aren't necessarily bringing political concerns. They're, they're bringing issues in their own personal life. Uh, how did the curriculum see that this was going to be relevant to the things that a counselor would be dealing with? Well, there's an awful lot that wasn't really made clear. And I, you're making a great point. It's not uh, most of what people bring into a, a counseling office is personal, interpersonal communication right. or internal issues. It's not not a lot of it has to do with political unless the political is incidental to the interpersonal. But we were supposed to use that as our understanding of our connection to the client. And then there was a lot of educate the client on their own standings. I guess one way to make this concrete is through the the concept of race. So anti-racism is a really big deal. This is a big part of the social justice mission, racial equity. So anti-racism isn't being against racism. It's balancing past racism with current action. So it's it's taking a look at how things have played out in the past racially and saying, okay, so to be specific, they would say that white people have dominated non-white people. So people of color are BIPOC people. So we need to disproportionately elevate the BIPOC people while putting the white people down so that we can balance that out. And that's anti-racism. It's, it's to put down the thing that has been put up. As counselors, we were told that we were supposed to broach race early on in the counseling relationship, and that means to begin a conversation about the race of the person to whom you're speaking. If you're two white people, you're supposed to have a conversation about your white privilege and how that has impacted your life and your identity development. If you're a white person speaking to a, a person of color or a BIPOC person, as they like to call them, which I don't, I don't like that label at all, Basically, it's like a politically correct way to say not white. Right. You know, their whole thing about centering whiteness. They are the ones that are centering whiteness, and that's a big big no-no to them. But you're supposed to talk about that and just make it a part of the relationship and a part of the communication. So you're supposed to ask them how they feel about sitting with a white person if they're not white. Even if it had nothing to do with the question that they were putting nothing before Nothing at all, yeah. yeah. Yeah, not, and re- regardless of what they're bringing into you, you're instructed to enter into that. Now, you raised questions and doubts about this whole approach, and, and your comments were not received uh, hospitably, <laughs> to say the least. I was really surprised that this was the way that we were talking about human beings. This lies in the face of any understanding I have of life, to think that we could break people down so simplistically and say that by observing the color of someone's skin, you can know significant things about that person. It seems childish, and in context of counseling, downright wrong to be teaching counselors to think about people this way. So, yes, I did raise questions about it, and... I tried to speak up respectfully, and I also used, in this course we're talking about where this was most salient, we had a series of journal assignments that we were to do throughout the course of that semester. So we were to turn in a personal writing each week to the professor. And so I used these to engage with this and try to push back on the content and try to broaden it and say, you know, there's room for nuance. And this was not met well. I was told to check my privilege and that being white, I couldn't understand certain things and you know, and all of this being told to me by another white person 
presumably could understand these things, where I could not and could understand my deficits, but I didn't have the capacity to understand. It was a really strange process, and it caused me a lot of frustration, grief. I really struggled with whether to stay in the program after that. What was the upshot of the whole thing? Were you finally able to graduate? Where's the situation stand now? I continued to go through the program after that, a sort of a sunk cost issue. You know, I put a lot of money into this and time, and I am getting some good things out of this, so maybe I can just continue to get through it. And there were a number of other issues that came up during the course of my studies that concerned me. But I managed to, I, I, you know, you're supposed to include the social justice language and everything, and there's, a, there's an element of truth in it. I think that it comes from something that is a universal that needs to be recognized about human relationships and group dynamics and, you know, the ideas of oppression and the ideas of injustice. These are, these are true things. It's just that the way that the social justice language seeks to address them is very simplistic, retributive. My solution as I went through the program was to try to build nuance into it and address it in a way that I could not violate my conscience, but also say enough of the words that they wanted to hear to appease <laughs> the requirements of, right. of any DEI inclusion in an assignment. But as I kept going through the program, when I nearly completed my coursework and I'm running out of classes that I needed to take, there was a core class that I needed. When I began the, the class, the first assignment was go to the syllabus, read the civility pledge, and come back and write a paragraph about your agreement with the civility pledge. And so I had never noticed this thing in our syllabus. I went to it. I read the civility pledge, which the language of which was a social justice pledge. It was just a, a, a pledge to be upholding and interrogating the concepts of in, intersectionality, racism, ableism, sexism, privileged and marginalized identities, and so on. And I knew, looking at this language, that, again, I could probably write something that would sort of massage this and nuance it, create nuance around it, and make it something that I could agree with. But I just felt like I had to draw a line, and I couldn't do it. And at that time, my response was just to drop that class and say, I'll take it again in a semester, in another semester with a different professor. So I dropped the course. I tried taking it again, different professor came up against the exact same requirement. In order to take this class, you first have to post publicly your agreement with this pledge. And by this time, I'm still receiving all of these communications. We're receiving communications that are very political about events in the world. Uh, January 6th, the, the war in Ukraine. It could be Columbus Day. It was, there was, they were promoting something about trans children. And so it was just all of these different messages that I felt bombarded by, and I just felt I can't continue to do this. And so I raised a question with my faculty advisor. And when I raised this with her about my concerns about the ideological, I guess, bias, just intense bias of the program, she said, if you don't like it, you'd better get through it fast because it's only going to intensify and get more uh, extreme. And we are aware as faculty that we are no longer training students who are going to be able to work as counselors with the Trump supporter. That's what, that, that was her word. <laughs> I had not brought up Trump. I don't care one way or another about Trump. That, that's not my issue. My issue isn't about defending someone who's a Trump supporter or, or demonizing them. I don't care. I want to remain politically neutral on this point. But the idea to me that I'm listening to a psychologist who works as a faculty of, on an applied psychology department that is training counselors to work with clients in the American population, and they are boldly stating that they know that they are training counselors who cannot work with 
half of the political landscape, that mental health care would be just for people whose political opinions meet with their approval, the corruptness of that, just the moral bankruptcy of that really shocked me. And so, anyway, I could... I could probably go on, but I've, I've talked about this a lot, so I'm <laughs> well, sure you but, uh, maybe have a follow-up. Aside from the ethics involved, I mean, it, it seems self-defeating. It seems like an effort to destroy the profession. Yeah, that's a great point. I've talked with so many people who are going through this in different programs, people who have left faculty positions because of this, and students who have struggled with this across the country and in, across the world, actually. This is a remaking of what it is to be a counselor. Antioch specifically states that the most important role that a counselor has is that of activist and change, social change agent, not listener, not guide, not mentor, not supporter, not, you know, confessional or any, you can imagine all the different ways that you might envision your relationship with a counselor, but your counselor's job, according to this program, is to be an activist and an agent of social change. So it is an undermining of the profession. It's a, it's a complete re-envisioning of the profession. Is this typical of schools in, in this specialty? I mean, if, if you go to another school to study counseling and, and its related specialties, are you going to encounter the same sort of thinking? From what I am hearing, it is fairly typical at this point. It sounds like it is a little bit more progressive than some programs, but I'm I since I began this public speaking process, I, I started making videos last October and putting them on YouTube and talking about my concerns. Since I began this process I've received a really large volume of correspondence. I, I get email every day and often from students who are either in graduate programs or are considering graduate programs and are concerned about this. But lots of students and professors and psychologists and practicing counselors who want to talk about programs that they just left. The universal theme is concern around these issues, that they are experiencing some version of this in their programs. So I hold Antioch accountable for choosing to teach in this way. And it does sound like they are maybe a little bit more blatant about it than some, but they're just part of a larger movement. The new language of DEI, of social justice, of social-emotional learning, this is going on throughout our educational system. And the fact that it's taken over counseling education to a great extent, I think is particularly concerning because this is a profession that sets up professionals who are going to have access and be a place of refuge for people when they are really emotionally vulnerable. Right. And so it sets up the opportunity to influence counseling clients to basically propagate and inculcate this kind of thinking through that relationship. But no, I do think it's, it's a broader issue. It's not just this particular program. Well, it has given you a kind of mission. You've now developed quite a prominent visibility on YouTube. You have a whole series of videos out on which you're examining many issues of higher education and counseling and psychology and and all the rest. Uh, You've developed a sort of interesting ministry here, if you would. It's unexpected. I didn't go into this field of study in order to do that. That was 
the farthest thing from my mind. I never wanted to be any kind of public speaker, and I certainly never pictured myself engaged in this kind of work. I started a coaching practice prior to all of this. My background was in natural medicine. I was a certified health coach, and I wanted to move into the counseling space. I had used my counselor's education, my counseling skills education, to incorporate that into a coaching practice. That's my primary job. My work is with clients. It's one-on-one with families, with adults, even some teens. That's my passion. But this YouTube project, as I started to make videos and receive a lot of correspondence, I was just hearing lots of stories, and I felt like the stories were important to be shared. And I think that it's important to shine a light on this and to talk about it openly and fearlessly without being concerned that we're going to be slandered or maligned, that we're going to be called names for it or that we're going to be canceled. We should be able to use our moral reason to say what we think about something and not be cowed into silence. You know, this program of intimidation is happening to people at work, in school, and socially, all over the place. And as long as I have an audience, I'll continue the dialogue, or to some extent. So this is a side project for me, but I do think that the work is really, it's been very relevant, and it's been fulfilling for me to be engaged with people who are also taking this on and having these discussions openly. Well, where can people find your videos and learn more about your work? On YouTube, I have a channel called The Radical Center, which is an ironic title, because it shouldn't be radical to be in the center, but um, that's, that's where we are right now. And so you can go there. That's the primary place. I also have been putting that the content up as audio podcasts, so you can find it on Spotify and Apple and a couple of other major podcast platforms, so if you're interested in listening there. And my website is theradicalcenterconsulting.com. I'm also on Twitter. I don't, not a big social media person, but I've been trying to use that to kind of keep abreast of things a little bit. So that's at J. Wesley Elliott, Elliott with two L's and two T's. Some colleagues and I have started an organization called Solid Ground. That is a peer support community online. We have four groups a week and we're adding more because there's been so much demand for this. And it's a great place for people to come together and discuss how these issues are impacting them. People who are being impacted by authoritarian ideologies often find a lot of relief in being able to talk with other people who know what they're going through and are going through something similar. So that's what that's for. And you can find us at solidgroundsupport.com, I think, not not org. I think it's .com, solidgroundsupport. Leslie Elliott, Radical Center. Thanks very much for talking about this for a a profession that's aimed at helping people and meeting people where they are. It's rapidly transforming into a propaganda and indoctrination vehicle. Yeah, that's well said. And thank you for taking the time to have this discussion. I appreciate you having me on. Religious liberty is kind of a given. We expect to be free in our choices of what faith path to follow. It hasn't always been so. Expectations, particularly among church leaders, have evolved over time. Jennifer Arnold is a blogger and a mother of five, and she has looked into this history of our ideas about religious liberty, and she's written about them on her blog, Catholic Heart Ablaze. She's with us now, and I thought it might be interesting just to chat about the history of this concept of freedom of religion. Jen, thanks very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. 
I enjoyed your article in which you kind of ran down the church's history of religious liberty and, and how it has evolved over time. Maybe you could give us a little background on this. Sure. Um, it, you know, it was the 4th of July was approaching, and I was thinking about religious freedom. And as always, I let the Holy Spirit lead me in the topics on which I write. And I decided to pull out my history books and take a look at how the Church has evolved over time. And we take religious freedom the way that we see it today for granted, and that's not always been the case. Free will has always been an issue, but uh, leaders have always had an interest in how they govern their people. So the Church has definitely fallen in line with evolving thought depending on the context in which it exists. So I decided to go ahead and look into that and take a closer look at it and see how it's changed over time to where we are today. What was the basic assumption among Church leaders? They, of course, were dealing in a world that was mostly governed by kings and queens, <laughs> maybe the idea of a constitutional monarchy, but with the advent of the United States and everything that has happened since, our whole understanding of what a nation should be has changed. Our whole understanding of the freedoms that we should have as citizens has developed. How did the Church cope with this kind of change and adjust its thinking? Monarchs, and especially if they were good monarchs or, you know, servant leaders, were concerned with the well-being of their people. And the well-being of their people was to get to heaven. So the monarchs would choose a, you know, quote-unquote state religion and basically oblige their subjects to be whatever religion that they believed to be the truth that would lead them to heaven, which ultimately, it may not seem like freedom, but in their minds it was freedom, because salvation is ultimate freedom. So they wouldn't be being good leaders if they didn't will the best for their subjects. And I think of it sort of like a, a parent and having rules in the household. You want the best for your children, so you create certain rules so that they can achieve that good. Even though they're not choosing that per se by themselves, you're doing it for them. It is for their greater good, which is salvation. So that's kind of how monarchs looked at it. And so the church looked at it the same way. So we had Pope, who obviously wanted what was best as the shepherd of the flock. It was really important to them to I don't want to use the word imposed, but these, these are the rules. You're going to be Catholic or whatever the religion is. And I should back up and say, this would be true of any religion that the leader thought was the truth. So this is true for Judaism and Islam, as well as other religions. So these nations would be under a state religion. And you even see in the Old Testament, for example, kings like David, they were the high priests. And so this was the religion, and this is what the people followed. It wasn't a personal choice. It was the choice of the leader. There is an inherent irony, I guess. Uh, Christianity makes a very exclusivist claim that following Christ is the one true path to salvation. Yet, at the same time, it, uh, it leaves a certain latitude for individual conscience. It calls upon the believer to make this decision for themselves. That's kind of a tricky situation to deal with. <laughs> it is. Um, again, I go back to parental influence, you know, where free will is such a gift. It's a gift from God. It's a gift of love. And for us to choose to love Jesus Christ is freedom. Back in those times, there was no concept of the sort of freedom that we experience today. 
so imposing those types of rules, you don't think you're in taking away their free will, but you're guiding them. You know, these are the rules, and it's in your best interest to follow them. Now, a change did take place with the Second Vatican Council, and uh, statements were made that were quite explicit that there was uh, consideration for individual conscience. How did the Church make that adjustment? The Second Vatican Council, we obviously see a huge, you know, there was already prior a huge shift in the way governments were run. Um, monarchies were no longer as relevant as they had been in the past. And so what Vatican II did was look at the dignity of the human person as an individual um, and, you know, look at their own personal freedom, their own personal free will, and decided that free will, that individual free will, as opposed to the collective good, was to be respected as a part of their human person, which was entitled to a certain level of dignity. It's an inherent dignity, and that no one should be coerced into a certain belief system. Now, today, this situation is that traditional religious faith is being challenged. Christianity has been challenged by the rise of a more militant version of Islam, and religion in general is being challenged by a growing secularism and, and an anti-religious feeling. How does the Church cope with that, and yet still maintain the freedom of individual conscience? It's funny. Um, there were a few popes before all this happened, before all this took place, as they kind of looked forward into the future. They foresaw that turning toward this ind- individual freedom would be problematic. Pope Pius VII, for example, was afraid that by doing a religious free-for-all, people would then have access to erroneous religions, which would then put them at risk for not achieving salvation, which isn't true freedom. And then we have, oddly enough, Pope Gregory the Sixteenth talked about different, quote-unquote, paths of truth, which we see now when we hear my truth and your truth. So even way back then, these popes foresaw the problems that would arise when we start allowing individual freedom to take over. But I think in the big picture, while the infiltration of incorrect thinking does take place, it makes those people who choose Jesus Christ to be that much more fortified, both in their choice and in the grace that they receive from that choice. Well, this is a fascinating topic, but it's only one of many that you have tackled uh, on your website, Catholic Heart Ablaze. Let's talk a little bit about your background and about uh, what you're trying to do with this ministry. So I'm a stay-at-home mom of five children. I'm currently homeschooling three of them. I had gotten my master's of theology and my master's of catechetics a while back, not knowing really what I wanted to do. Um, I just started writing, and I was writing and writing and writing in all my free time. And after a few years of that, I decided that I needed to put it somewhere, which is where my website came um, CatholicHeartAblaze.com, which I launched in January of this year, 2023. I write weekly. Every week there's a new piece as well as going back and searching the old pieces. They're all there. There's hundreds of them there. And I'm just waiting to see where the Lord leads me with this. Jennifer Arnold, CatholicHeartAblaze.com. And Catholic Heart Ablaze is all one word. Uh, check it out. Jen, thanks for being with us. I appreciate your taking time and discussing this. Thank you so much. Be with us next time when we explore other aspects of religious communication and look deeper into the great Christian heritage of free expression.
Free Expression with Bill Castle is a production of Good Shepherd Catholic Radio and Company Publications, where good books, good music, and good radio are always good company. Dan Curris provided technical assistance. Theme and incidental music are by Dan Adam. The program was produced and directed by Bill Castle. This is Good Shepherd Catholic Radio.